Are you ready? Ah, we have yeah. conversations all the time. I know. I know. You talk to me every day. Is this the most nervous you've ever been for a conversation with me? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. Except when I'm like, come home, I have a new idea. <laughs> That's the other time you get That's nervous. It's great. We're going to have a great conversation. You're listening to Lead Him to Life, where it's our prerogative to explore what it means to be authentically human and fully alive. We have far more questions than answers, but believe that extraordinary answers can be found in the ordinariness of a journey. I'm your host, Emily Leadham. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of Lead Him to Life. Teresa Hendrickson is in the house. Teresa, welcome to Lead Him to Life. Thank you, Emily. It's great to be here. Okay, introduce yourself. This is, I'm so delighted for this episode. You and I have had the great honor of working together for a full two-ish months, three-ish months. Something like that. Is that right? Yeah. When August just, 4th August, yeah. was the beginning day, yeah. so three Yeah, so three depending months. when you're listening to this. Um, but it has been the most joyful and exciting, and I just feel like I learn from you all the time, and I'm delighted to be able to have you on the on the podcast. So introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are to get started. Emily, thank you. I am glad to be at Catholic Family Services. Yahoo! It is an honor to be a part of that work. So... As you introduce myself, Teresa Henriksen. I have been married to Andy for 34 years. We just enjoy Where did you meet? We, College? Well, actually, the the truth is I had a crush on him in high school. Did you? I did. Yeah, he was a senior at O'Gorman and I was a freshman and I had this crush on him. But we didn't meet until he was in grad he school. He was your upperclassman crush. He was. Oh, this is the best. He was. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. I, I loved his laugh. He had a great, he still has a great laugh. Uh-huh. But anyway, so that makes it a fun story for yeah, us. Yeah, totally. So we did meet. He was finishing. He went to USD for his grad program, and I was finishing up an undergraduate degree in um, theater. Okay. And then did a second major in alcohol and drug studies. So anyway, we've raised three adult daughters. And we have two son-in-laws and three granddaughters, and we just love it. So that's a little bit of personally. We've had a music ministry for our entire marriage, actually. What's your instrument? The bass? Well, I play upright bass and a little bit of piano and vocals, and he plays guitar. And now our grandkids have their little instruments that they ask for songs and play. So it's great. So our kids really grew up with music around them and doing um, singing songs in church, et cetera. So it was just a great gig. Do you miss theater? I do miss theater. Do you? I do. I do. But But it was just a season, and I have learned that I can take anyone's material and make it my own. Interesting. With permission, so I always give credit where credit's due. Right. Uh, But it was a gift. Right. It actually, my... It's an interesting topic today of shame because my career in theater actually was born out of my own personal experiences with shame. You're kidding. No, so we can get to that. Um, yeah, I'm going to. And if you want to start there, we yeah. can. Um, well, I just, I'm very curious because, so I did theater in high school. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, Bill, Bill as I just sat down, said, uh, I see you were the thespian of the year <laughs> in 2000, whatever it was. I was like, thank you. Yes, that's my claim to fame. Uh, but I loved it. I absolutely loved theater. And um, similarly, I would say some of my love of theater was probably born out of my own shame. But I've, although I've never really uh, thought about it in that way. So I'm really intrigued by that. Okay, so 
maybe as a starting point, Teresa, we're talking about shame today. What is shame? How would you describe it? Um, yeah, what what is it? Just to lay a context. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay. I just want to give you clinically where I come from. Mm. So I have a master's yeah, degree in educational psychology and counseling and have been in clinical mental health practicing for over 25 years, um, addictions counseling for 30 years or so, recently received a certificate in spiritual direction. Yeah. So I'm really intrigued and interested in the integration of spirituality, Catholic anthropology, uh, Catholic view of the human person into clinical practice. So that's one of my areas of passion. So I say that as a preface because shame, I've really been studying it personally and professionally since the mid-80s, I personally would say. Personally and professionally. Yes. Yeah. So personally, really allowing the Lord to heal that part of um, how I've understood myself throughout my life mm-hmm. and um, psychologically applying what I learned clinically both to myself yeah. and to those who I get to meet that Into are in front world. of me. Yeah. So yeah. how I would define it and how um, other authors in the field would define it is really this intense internal state uh, that's painful of a sense of inadequacy, defect, that there's something inherently wrong with me as a person would Mm. be kind of how it's summed up in a nutshell. It's more than a feeling. It tends to have a physiological response as well. So when someone's experiencing shame, they may have like a rock in their gut or their their throat might tense up. Different things for different people. Different things for different people. Mm-hmm. But it really is this intense feeling like there is something. I'm not up for the task of what's before me. I can't endure what's in front of me. I'm not okay. I'm inadequate. I'm any number of self-recriminating statements could be filled in there. But it tends to be pretty intense. I often think of the feeling of embarrassment as an accompaniment to shame. Is that is that accurate, or would you describe that differently? So I really like um, The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. Okay. It came out in 2015. He describes that humiliation, embarrassment, the sense of di- disgrace can be an accompanying feeling or emotion, but shame is even bigger than that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it has interpersonal dynamics, dynamics as well. Dynamics in a way that maybe embarrassment or some of those feelings yes. don't have interpersonal dynamics. Those are more interior feelings, dispositions, that kind of thing. But yes. shame is something bigger than yeah, that. Yeah, it's bigger and deeper. Is it a belief system? And it, yeah, it includes a belief system, yes. So what I find is fascinating, so one of the first people— um, the first place in which we really look at shame actually is in Scripture. Oh, totally. And so I think it's fascinating. Christian or not. Christian or not, it's the first place that shame is brought up. Yeah. And so I think it's fascinating because the last few years, there's been this explosion in writing in shame. Brene Brown. Yes, and she's marvelous and brilliant, and her work is worth reading to give us just insight and clarity and, and yeah. how to move through shame and yeah. heal from shame. So Yeah, good great, clinical work at least. Great, yeah. great stuff. Yeah. I lost my train of thought. 
Oh, but anyway, so it's been around forever. It's not a new thing on the scene. But we do know that it has, if we look at shame as being a place in which an interpersonal bridge gets broken, I think that it becomes a place with which to kind of, how do I repair this bridge? Okay, what do you mean by that? Can you give like an example of maybe somebody or or yourself that, what what does that mean? Sure. So what it means is, Interpersonal bridge. Yes. Gershwin Kaufman uses that word back in the 70s when he was writing. So it kind of goes with attachment. So we know the importance of secure attachment with Mm -hmm. parents and children. Mm -hmm. And when that attachment is um, disruptured or ruptured, those can be places where shame is experienced. So, for example, my... This is a, a made-up example, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. My, I raised three little girls, yeah. tender, sensitive, smart, intelligent, observe really well, but they don't know how to interpret. Children don't know how to interpret what they, what they observe. Right. So, for example, little girl is playing outside. She's making mud pies. She's really proud of her ability to create this pie, wants to share it with mom. In the meantime, her sweet little dress is dirty and her... Hands and feet are dirty, but she's proud of her accomplishment and excited to share her creative work with her mom. And mom, because of whatever's going on in mom's world, has to get out the door. It's time to go to daycare. It's time to go to the doctor. And she looks at her little girl and says, you are so dirty. Look what you did to your dress. What is going on? You're dirty. Now we got to clean up, et cetera. You can fill in the blank. So that inner personal bridge gets broken in that moment the little girl might look down mom and daughter between mom and daughter little daughter might look down she might take a posture of shame or um, all in likelihood i'm going to call it shame but this internalized i'm dirty Mm. mom said i'm dirty i look at my hands they're dirty i look at my dress so therefore i must be dirty Mm. So it's that moment of shame. Mm-hmm. So it can be repaired. It's repaired in right. relationship as well. And I don't know right. if you want to get to right. the repair yeah, part. We'll get there. But, yeah. but that's an example. Yeah. Another, it can also be even just more subtle yeah. than that between friends. or Right, um, right. Yeah. So I, to me, it seems like a lot of the places where... Um, individuals carry shame maybe this is not fair um but it's often in the hidden places um meaning uh let's take the example of pornography i think that this is an area where a lot of people experience immense shame um and but it's often in a hidden place so i'm what is that yeah so i'm gonna be really bold on your show i love it say Every human experience, every human being experiences shame. 100%. It's the degree to which they experience shame, the degree to which shame influences their identity of self, uh, and so the depth and extent of the shame. Okay. So typically people, this is a broad statement, who are involved in some kind of addiction, addiction, yeah. food, alcohol, drugs, yes. sex, pornography, etc., is in all likelihood they have an identity that's formed in shame. And so it's hidden 
But shame also thrives in staying hidden. Yeah. That's part of how it's kind of menacing and subtle because it doesn't like to make itself known because then I can go out at it directly. So shame hides in our woundedness. It hides in our sin. It hides in the way in which we beat ourselves up for being human. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, that's, that is a... When I was said earlier that I often accompany like the idea of embarrassment around shame, really that's what it is. It's this, it's the hiddenness. It's the ways that we like to keep it hidden, the ways that shame likes to stay in the dark. Because when light shines on it, it ceases to really be shame. You know, I think it it actually that's the place where healing can begin to uh, take root or whatever. So that's, a, I love how you worded that. Would you, um, one other quick question regarding kind of definition. Would you um, describe shame and guilt differently? What's the difference between shame and guilt? Shame being more attached to an identity? That's how I would define it, that shame is more an interior experience Mm -hmm. of how I see myself, how I see myself in the world, and how I'm afraid other people see me. So I need to stay hidden so that people don't know who I really am because my greatest fear is if people really knew who I was or saw who I was, they would leave me, reject me, abandon me, et cetera, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Where guilt is, I have done something that's against my value system or what I believe to be right or Shouldn't wrong. Have done that. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't, I was unkind. I, I, I gossiped, I any That's actually a really good or, thing to feel guilty when we need to feel guilty, right? Yes, exactly. So then I can make repair. Yeah, I can go to the person and say I did this, and I I am I apologize. I'm sorry I did that. I, I would like to make amends to you, and we repair that interpersonal bridge mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. this effective, helpful thing of guilt. Yeah, where shame is this interior sense of um, I'll use your words again: humiliation or embarrassment or inadequacy, or I just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. unable to really love my own humanity because it's flawed. It's this belief that I'm flawed as a human being. So a friend of mine once talked about how the number of people that carry with them through life the belief that their humanity is not good and beautiful. And I think that's so sad. And I think that describes shame. I think when people live from this place of shame, they're unable to see the beauty of their humanity in its entirety. Wow. Um okay I I'm going to I want to come back to that because I think that there's there's so much there but before we go there tell me about how theater was this the starting point for you Yes yes absolutely I'm so curious about that No that was exactly where my head went So when I was a very young girl like 6 years old I was very very shy Okay but I think just the dynamics of lots of moves in my early childhood and whatever was going on in early childhood, I think there was shame things that that had occurred. Mm-hmm. And so I was very shy, wouldn't want to leave my mom's side, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they, in their in my mom's wisdom, enrolled me in creative dramatics class at the theater in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So at six years old, they would march me down there on Saturday mornings just to teach me how to get out of my own interior experience of myself, which was shy and fearful and closed in on myself. 
Anxious. Anx- Were you anxious? I think or would you anxious. Describe it differently. Um, I think it, at it six really you don't know shy. that yeah. it's yeah. that yeah. it's yeah. anxiety or yeah. not. But certainly, yeah. if we look at anxiety is fearfulness, then yeah. certainly it would meet the criteria for anxiety, that sense of fearfulness, to not be seen. Yeah, That's the other piece about shame, is it's a fear of being seen, a fear of being known. Exposed. So that's really how it came to be for me. That was the process. And so I was in theater actually all the way through high school, and then I took a break and then in college was back in it. So my bachelor's is actually in fine arts of uh, performing. So what impact did that have on that six-year-old little girl who was experiencing so much shyness and that kind of thing? What what impact did theater have on someone experiencing shame? Yeah, I think it's beautiful and and helpful because I was able to, to get out of myself, yeah. you have to be able to get out of yourself to be able to perform in front of other people. Mm-hmm. The beauty is that uh, here's a role, here's your script, and people with shame tend to have a pretty wide range of emotional experience interiorly, even if yeah. they can't necessarily describe them. So theater became an outlet with which to um, emote and be other people and express myself. Now, interestingly enough, here's a little extra self-disclosure. It took much longer. uh, So I'm gifted musically. We've talked about that. But because music and vocal work is really being seen differently, I don't have a role to play. You don't have a role to play. It's It's more exposing. It's more exposing. It's taken a lot longer to not have shame impact my vocal work just to be seen and heard vocally as um, as it was made by God. Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey. It's, I'm so intrigued by this because I, I think um, I, I wouldn't have been able to describe this in high school, but in some ways I'm sure theater allowed me a role to hide behind kind of thing because of my own experience, my own experience of shame, my internal experience of shame. Um, and it's funny because I was in choir and all of those things, but oh man, singing a choir solo felt 8,000 times more vulnerable than singing a solo on stage as a as a character. That, that is so interesting. Yeah, because there's a different um, presentation of self that happens in that, isn't there? Yes, because as you just described, the, the shame piece can hide in a role because I'm not that person, so mm-hmm. I can access everything I know mm-hmm. and be this other person, mm-hmm. where vocally, mm-hmm. or presentations, or whatever, mm-hmm. you're getting me. Mm-hmm. You get to see me. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> Teresa, how does shame show up in people's lives? Because you you made this big, bold statement earlier that I totally agree with, that every human being has experienced some level of shame, and it's just a matter of to what degree they've experienced it, how they've experienced it, et cetera, um, to what extent, you know, um, has it affected their identity and that kind of thing. Um, you mentioned it can show up physically for people, like a rock in your gut or um, maybe tension in your jaw. I can't remember the other example you used. How, how does shame present itself? To the human person who may not even be aware of it themselves. Yes. So again, wide variety. If we look at 
addictions, we need to find the root of shame because it's there. So for an alcoholic, there is a root of shame. There's a root of shame. If a person has trauma, let's find the root of shame. Um, If there is adult children of alcoholics, people who grow up in homes where there has not been fantastic attachment for one reason or another, let's look for the root of shame. Let's look for the root of shame where there's been divorce because those experiences, those rupture points that you talk about can be a place of abandonment, rejection that gets internalized and moved into a place of shame. It must be my fault that mom and dad are getting divorced. There must be something wrong with me because kids, again, can observe, but they don't interpret well. So, and for a child, it gets interpreted through the lens of self. It must be something about me that I did wrong or didn't do that caused this event. Right. Um, Other places to look for shame. I know you have lots of young parents listening to your show. So I just encourage parents to learn how not to yell in their parenting style. Mm -hmm. In our own frustration as people, as parents, as kids being so kids, stinking hard. it's so hard to not raise our voice at kids. But even a voice tone, a look, words can create this shaming experience. Ugh, and yeah. can create, so when I start shrinking, when I start feeling smaller in a situation, Shame is showing up. Mm -hmm. We can hear young adults in their 20s talk about going home, and they don't like to go home because they feel like they're 10 again, and they enter their their parental home, and they feel like they shrink as they walk through the door. So it may or may not have shame attachments to it as they revert to interacting with their parents as they did as a child. Right. So the way it shows up, is specific to the individual experiences. Right, and where it's rooted. And where it's rooted. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you say, I mean, I'm just thinking for people that might be looking at their lives feeling like, I don't have a lot of freedom in this area or another area. So, I mean, like, oh, you're speaking right to my heart in terms of like, I work really hard not to yell at my girls, but it is so hard. Like my girls test my patients in a way that I've never had tested my patients tested before. Like parenting just does that to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, oh man, you know, like, and and I'm and I'm really begging the Lord on a daily basis for just the freedom to be like patient, the freedom to not allow these little um, frustration, actually big frustrations, you know, sometimes they're big frustrations to not allow these frustrations to just derail my ability to be present and to be calm and to be, you know, self-regulatory and that kind of thing. But it's a real, it's a real challenge. So I'm regularly begging the Lord for this freedom, right? So if there's an area for people that they desire greater freedom, or maybe it's um, freedom around certain disciplines or freedom around not eating so much sweets or whatever, would you recommend looking for the source of shame that might be attached to some of those areas where we are not free? I think that would be a great thing. Shame and woundedness, they go they go hand in hand. Mm. So let me find the wound. So if I'm- This is new to me, by the way. I'm like digging this kind of continue. So fascinating. If I like sugar, yeah. 
And what I really Which I do. need, I love sugar, but sometimes I turn to sugar instead of a nap. What yeah. I really need is Preach. 20 20-minute nap and yeah. rest and it's not connect, connected to anything other than a physical yeah. need for rest. But my brain is doing its dance saying, "Oh, sugar would just light up those Chemicals. chemicals in my brain. I'm good to go. I take the sugar. um, And then I have this response of, ah, self-recriminating. Why did I have the sugar? I really didn't need that sugar. What was I seeking? Did I need comfort? Did I need... No, you needed rest. Yeah. So I can beat myself up over a choice I made where there's not freedom. Mm -hmm. So the beating myself up is the place of shame. Mm -hmm. Nope, I really do have the freedom. If I want to light up that part of my brain by having sugar, then freely eat the sugar. Yeah. Or freely take a nap. Yeah. It's in the beating myself up of self-condemnation, self-recrimination, where the shame and the woundedness comes in. Do you think certain personality types are more um, inclined toward shame i think that's the possibility but i would want to do a little more research to really look at how that plays out you know what i mean like i wonder if a melancholic who is very um yeah like lives out of their interior world that kind of thing that's much more attentive to the interior dispositions that's also like a like melancholics are idealists right so they desire everything to be like perfect and they have they just have really high ideals my husband's a melancholic and i find that he more often is aware of the places that he wants to grow so i don't you know what i mean or where he's like frustrated if he doesn't if he eats the sugar he's he's much more apt than i am to be like i just i shouldn't have i shouldn't have eaten the sugar and i'm like man i ate the sugar you know like is i wonder if it's a personality thing I have other areas of shame. Don't get me wrong, but that kind of um, hard on yourself disposition. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. We might have to save that for another day in yeah. regard to how yeah. personality impacts and the, what. Was how does, more questions and answers, right? How does personality develop? Yeah, and what impacts personality right? and what is nurture nature? All those kinds of pieces. Oh my gosh, pieces. totally, but totally. Shame can also show up as perfectionism. So okay, the, give me like t- let's say more about that. So the root of perfectionism can be can be shame. A performance based identity can mm-hmm. be shame. So I don't want to say it's absolutely shame, but I think you can start looking at yeah. where are those places that um, in perfectionism I don't have the freedom to make a mistake. I have mm-hmm. to if I can't do mm-hmm. it perfectly, I'm going to procrastinate till the last Just minute. Don't do it at all. Or I don't do it at all. Sure. I hide behind my fear of making a mistake. Right. So it has to be perfect or not at all. So this all or nothing thinking that can come into play. Yeah. Um, Shame can show up as feeling paralyzed. Hmm. I want to kind of that fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. The freeze part. I want to run away, but I feel just kind of stuck as I get smaller and I want to speak, but I don't have a voice. Yeah. So it can just show up in a number of ways. Yeah, all kinds of ways. ways. So, and I think, as we look, I might be jumping ahead a little bit. As I look at kind of the antidote for shame, I was just yeah. Is yeah. I think this is where one of the places counseling becomes really helpful is it's a place for people to explore and be seen in a safe way where they don't have to fear being abandoned or rejected. And so mm. the the antidote, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that word. 
but we need to be seen. We were made, we were created to be, to be known. And so in shame, we say, I I am not worth being known. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be known. Hide. Because uh, I'm afraid of what they will say when they know me. And I see myself as flawed. Yeah. And so who wants to get someone else flawed. flawed? And that's free, right? And that's freedom. It, there's freedom there. Yeah. And so the antidote is really to allow yourself to be known. And to be seen. And to be seen. And so we have to be vulnerable, but shame will say, and, and Brene Brown has done so much great work around really understanding yeah. vulnerability yeah. Um, and the context for being yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. So community is really important. Really close friends where they can see me and give me feedback in a loving sort of way where I can be seen and it's safe to be seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So the repair with the little girl who got mud all of her face. Yeah. If if mama takes her little sweet face after mama has recomposed and regulated her emotion, emotions to take the little girl's face and and say, Susie, give me your eyes. Mm-hmm. And she looks at her daughter with great love and, and physical touch and says, I love you and you aren't dirty and what you made is beautiful. I want to put it on the counter. Now let's go put a pretty dress on you so we can go do what we're going to do. It's repaired. Yep. Yep. It moves toward that. Yep. That restoration, though, needs to happen. Yes. I learned something recently, and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast or not yet, but the origin of the word vulnerability actually means to be able to be hurt or to be able to be harmed. And and I think we know that just like by definition, right? Vulnerability is putting ourselves out there in a way that we could be, we could be harmed. Um, and the actual great gift of vulnerability is when we are not hurt. It's actually putting ourselves out there for the opportunity to be received and loved in the very place that we could be hurt. That's the restoration that needs to happen to undo this shame. Yes. And so we're received. Yeah. We're received and we're known and we're loved. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So good. Yeah. I think a future conversation I would encourage is really the the context of how our relationship with the Lord does this repair work yeah. around shame yeah. and our identities, a shame-based identity. My bias is that as we really come to understand who we are as children of God and have a Christ-centered identity, mm-hmm. that, that the healing is exponential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's but, really what I was going to ask you next is what role does the understanding of our own humanity, falling in love perhaps even with our humanity and with the humanity of Christ, what role does that have in the healing work of shame? Yes, it's a wonderful conversation <laughs> because I've long believed since the 80s and in my own, the way the Lord has healed my own shame is in having the freedom to relate all the wounds, all the shame, all the experiences, all the memories to the one who made me, the one who creates me, the one who tells me who I am, creates freedom. And so to be seen, to be known, to be received, to be loved, to be reverenced by the one who made me, redeems me, saves me, is freedom. Mm -hmm. So if if the one who made me loves every part of me, then who am I to not love and reverence every part Mm -hmm. of me? Mm -hmm. Even those that I look at and go, ooh, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Nope. It's redeemed. It's saved. So to reverence that. Yeah. You know, Hebrews, 
in 12. I don't have the exact verse, but they're talking about um, not letting a root of bitterness form in a person. And I think shame is a root of bitterness towards oneself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to be received first in our faith gives me permission to love my humanity. It gives me permission to love the humanity of the person before me. Yeah. With whatever, the good, bad, ugly. Yeah. Yeah. The beautiful. That's so true. You know what this is making me think of this weekend? Um, I had a dream that Matt and I went on a vacation. And we were at a be- like on this beautiful beach vacation with our girls and watching the waves roll in, like this really vivid dream. And so I woke up thinking like, oh man, I would love to go on a, on a family vacation to see the ocean. I would love to take our girls to see the ocean. So Saturday morning, I'm sitting, I'm just having some prayer time by, the, by my fireplace. And, um, and I started to relate this to the Lord. Right, that this was on my mind, this desire to go on a vacation with my with, with with my family. And a minute in, I thought, Emily, stop it. That's materialistic, or that's that's not a holy desire, right? Like, kind of all of these like things started to creep into my brain. Like, that's a dumb thing to ask for. That's because I was really, I mean, it was I was praying with like, asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knock it should be given to you. All these things, oh, open to you. Um, And so I just started relating these desires and then stopped and thought, okay, of all the things in the world, what a petty thing to be asking that I want to take my girls to see the ocean. And God was so tender with me. And in that very place of lie that I started to believe that this was like a less beneath him, like something like this is beneath you, Lord, right? Who am I to say that? But in that very place, he invited me to even more concretely describe those desires to him. And it just was this powerful thing of undoing this shame experience that I was having, right? Of, of embarrassment thinking, okay, this, yeah, like I said, this is not a holy desire. This is materialistic or this is less than or something like that. And instead, like in that very place, God asked me to make my desires more known to him and the, isn't that the, the greatest? It's so beautiful because you just beautifully hit on how shame can show up in a lie. Yeah. And how subtle it is. Yeah. And how it says, I can't ask for what I need or desire. desire. And the Lord I'm who, afraid of my own desires. I'm afraid of my own desires. Yes. So beautifully, it's just a great summary because then the Lord says, no, make yourself more known to me. I want yeah. more of of how you think and what your desires are, and he yes. loves you and meets you, as the, you in those. Oh, it's, it's just a great best. story. It's the best. Okay, Teresa, well, get excited, friends. I know as you're listening to this, I'm sure you're loving her as much as I am. And um, Teresa's the new clinical director, as we mentioned at the beginning, at Catholic Family Services. So I'm so excited for more conversations around this topic. And, I, and you alluded to a couple of things like that would be a great, you know, another, a whole other topic because we could talk about these things for hours and hours and hours and hours and days and days and days. Um, so I'm excited to continue to be able to have more conversations surrounding this. Um, 
maybe a really practical two two more questions. One just really practical. If this is like stirring something in someone as they're listening and they're like, oh man, like I've got some shame that I didn't even know was there. What's the first thing that you'd say to them? You know, if they like to read or listen to podcasts, I would look at Brene Brown's work. Yep. She has quite a bit of research. I would also recommend looking at The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. I think those okay. couple of books are a great resource. There's all kinds of podcasts. There's all kinds of um, decent information. If they want to begin to dismantle their own shame do responses, some do some of the work, yes, then I would seek out a clinical therapist yeah. to begin to just unpack it and get to know themselves because we need to be known to ourselves as yeah. well yeah. and be known to others. Yeah. I would begin that work yeah. in a safe place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This seems to be a theme for a lot of our counselors at Catholic Family Services that they um, we've been talking about for the last year or so. Just it's been a real joy for them to accompany different people in this in this type of work. Um, so we, I, we just have some counselors that are really passionate about it. And I think that's probably across the country right now in large part because of the work of Brene Brown that's just really elevated and offered some greater language to people that are recognizing, hey, I want to do some of this. Um, but yeah, it just is, it's so connected to the healing work of God. Um, so it's just, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful idea. Okay, last question. I ask every guest that comes on Lead Him to Life, what is a question that you have been pondering. This is a place with more questions and answers, and I wanted to start conversations with ourselves, with our friends, with the Lord, whoever it might be, um, and to recognize that all of the guests, myself included, are on a journey where we're we're asking, and we're wondering, and we're pondering. So what is a question that you have been pondering? So a question that gets pondered daily in the Henriksen household and has been pondered for a number of years is what does love look like today? Mm. So we have conversations about what love looks like today. What is the tangible, concrete way that we have engaged in love? It might be an act of service that brought great joy, or it might be an act of service that was done disgruntled but needed to be done for the betterment of another person in the mm. family or mm -hmm. who we've encountered. It might be a smile. It might be a kind word. It might be something that we've received in how it showed up. Or yeah. It might be it might be something we have engaged in toward another. Is it so, a question you ask at the beginning of the day, the end of the day, both? Both. Both. What does love look like? Or sometimes I if something is happening, we'll recognize one another and say, oh, that's what love looks like. Oh. And that's really fun. That's powerful. When someone is doing a kindness for me. That's a connector. Yes. I, and I can say, that's what love looks like. Thank you. Mm, what it does heals. love look like? It heals to, shame yeah. because I'm seen, I'm known. Yeah. This met a place. I love that. I'm going to start doing that. Matt Leadham, I know you're listening. Get ready, honey. Here it comes. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's so great. <laughs> Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I feel like it would, this was like one of the fastest episodes I feel like I've ever uh, interviewed just because there's so much and and a lot more that I want to know and continue to ask um, Teresa. So um, stay tuned because I think there's going to be more where this came from. Uh, but please do share this episode with a friend. I hope you, um, I hope that it draws you uh, into a place of reflection and prayer. I hope that it draws you into a place of prayer uh, with the one who knows you and who receives you and who will never abandon you. Friends, 
Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Share this episode with a friend. We'll see you next time.